Amen. <clears throat> if you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and turn to the book of Colossians in the New Testament. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, you should see Bibles this week scattered strategically through the seating. Uh, you can flag somebody down. If you don't see one right next to you, flag somebody down. We'll be happy to pass one to you. Uh, we're going to be in Colossians this morning, continuing a study of this letter that Paul wrote to a church that he had never visited. And today, the passage that we come to at the end of chapter 1 is something of a unique picture in Paul. Typically, what we expect Paul to be doing is writing to churches to teach them something. He's either writing to explain something about the gospel, about who Jesus was, about how the gospel plays out in life, or he's writing to challenge some sort of false teaching that's worked its way into a community, or he's, he's writing to explain how, how to live as believers Usually Paul is writing to, to teach. In this section, though, come, when we come to verse 24 of chapter 1, Paul is actually stepping back and explaining himself. He's less explaining the content of the gospel than he is his own approach to ministering that gospel. There are other places in Paul that are like this, but I don't know of any that's so clear and so detailed as the one we come to today. And it makes sense that he would go there because this was a church that Paul had not met personally. We're told that he's never seen them face to face. He's, he's sent his people to work among them. He, he gets regular reports about what's going on. He feels like he knows them and has a connection to them, but he, he's never actually seen them. And so what we get in this letter is not just his instruction to them, but his introduction of himself to them and his priorities as a minister of the gospel in the world in general and among them in particular. For that reason, because this text is so unique, it gives us a unique opportunity. Because normally, I don't, as a pastor, uh, as an elder, a representative of our elders, don't normally get a chance to explain ourselves to our church, to explain the kinds of decisions that we make, the kinds of priorities that are reflected in the way that our church operates, and the kinds of things we do, the kinds of things that we don't do. But this passage in Paul has had as big an impact on, on us as, as any passage on the shape of the ministry that, we're, that we hope to build through our congregation. It's a ministry that's built on the gospel. The gospel controls everything. So partly what we're going to do today, as we look through Paul's manifesto on his own ministry, is, is offer a manifesto on our ministry as a congregation, a window into why we do what we do. But it's really more than just me as a representative of our elders explaining ourselves to you guys. It's also a manifesto calling for you to adopt this same ministry posture. One of the things that we promise to each other when we officially join, when we become a member of this congregation, one of the promises in our membership covenant is that we're going to be active in each other's lives doing something we call mutual discipleship. We're promising to, in other words, we're promising to be ministers for each other. We don't, we don't set it aside as something that a professional class of ministers does. We, we take the initiative to be disciples and, and ministers in each other's lives. So, so what this passage gives us the opportunity to do is to set out a vision that should motivate and captivate all of us as we go about living as church members with each other. Now, not surprisingly for Paul, his ministry philosophy and ours following him begins and ends with the gospel. With, with the news of what God has done for sinners through Jesus. That's a truth that shapes everything. 
one thing you're going to notice as we get into this passage is that it isn't really that linear. Normally, Paul is. He's normally a thinker who thinks from A to B to C and concludes with D. In this passage, going from the last part of chapter 1 into the early part of chapter 2, he's kind of talking almost in, in circles. In the first paragraph, at the end of chapter 1, he describes his ministry on the whole. This is what I'm doing everywhere. This is just who I am, what I'm giving my life to. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, he applies it directly to the Colossians. This is what I'm doing among you. It's the same themes. They get repeated in, in clusters in both of these paragraphs. So, so the way we're going to get at it today is to try to draw Rather than follow him through these circles, we're going to draw the key themes that he presents from each paragraph, combine them together, and try to come up with a clear and and grabbable sense of what was driving Paul's ministry. These main themes cluster around three different segments, if you will. Paul gives us a sense of the content of his ministry, what it is that he is communicating, what drives him. He gives us a sense of the methods of his ministry, the methods by which he communicates that content. And he gives us a sense of the goal of his ministry, what he hopes to see, how he defines success. That's where we're headed this morning. Before we get too far, if you found the passage in your Bible, would you mind standing with me in honor of God's Word as we read from Colossians chapters 1 and 2, beginning in verse 24 of Colossians 1. This is the Word of the Lord. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them... God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is God's word. You can be seated. So, Paul, declaring what his ministry is about, makes it clear what is the content of his ministry. It's a gospel-centered content. And it's summarized in this notion of God's mystery. God's mystery. Maybe you noticed that in both paragraphs that word comes up. It actually occurs like three times in the space of of these two paragraphs. Shouldn't be a surprise, given what we've already seen in Colossians, given his prayer, Paul's prayer, that celebrated the gospel and and prayed that God would work it out in people's lives. And and given his, 
his hymn to Christ that we looked at last week at the middle of chapter 1, given, given his hymn to the sufficiency of Jesus for everything that we could need, it isn't surprising that he also makes Jesus and his work the center of his ministry, the content that he's communicating. Both paragraphs have the same summary message at the center of them. Look at the center of the first paragraph in verse 26. Paul has said that he's rejoicing in sufferings. He said that he's doing it for the church. He said that he's been made a minister of the church uh, according to a stewardship that God has given him. And and that that stewardship was to make the word of God fully known. And then in verse 26, he tells you what that word of God is. What he's trying to make fully known is the mystery hidden for ages, now revealed. It's a mystery that, that is glorious and rich and made known now among the Gentiles, a mystery of Christ in you as the hope of glory. Then you skip to the next paragraph, same basic structure. He talks about how he's struggling for the Colossians and for those who are at Laodicea. He's struggling in order that they may be encouraged and be knit together in love and they may understand the knowledge of God's mystery. That's what he's aiming at. It's Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, what is he, what is he talking about when he refers to God's mystery? And I think the word that he's using doesn't come through quite so well in our English word mystery because we have other, other connotations that we apply to that word. So, so what he's not talking about is a Sherlock Holmes-style mystery, right? Which is some sort of thing that's tough to understand, tough to figure out, requires expert knowledge to to track down clues and and then finally have a big reveal at the end. It's not that kind of mystery. It's not a Scientology kind of mystery. I don't know how much you know about Scientology, the Tom Cruise thing, but but in their way of looking at the world, there's this there's this self-fulfillment comes through gaining insight into this secret knowledge that comes uh, one step after the other, and after, and in each step is gained through more and more financial contribution. So that it's really an elitist thing. You you reach this mystery through your ability to persevere and to pay on this elitist scale. It's not that kind of mystery. Some sort of secret knowledge revealed only to a few. It's a mystery in the sense that it's unexpected. That it's foreshadowed, but not clearly understood before. It's what Paul summarizes as hidden, hidden throughout ages and generations, but now finally revealed. Drawing from the details of the text and and the things that we've seen around this text, we know that it's a mystery because it hinges not on the military triumph that those who expected a Messiah were probably looking for, but it hinges on what's accomplished on the cross, an ultimate act of apparent defeat and shame. It's something that, that achieves reconciliation through the blood. That's what, that's what we saw last week. It's, not, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mystery because the hope of glory is less immediate political power that may have been expected, a sort of throwing off of the Romans and installing people of Israel as, as, as powers over this, this military and political kingdom. It's less that kind of glory. The hope of glory that the gospel is, is a hope of glory that's in you. It's about transforming individuals. It's mystery because the Messiah, who is expected, has come not only to God's people Israel, but to and for the Gentiles. He's a Messiah for everybody. This glorious 
riches has been made known, we're told, among the Gentiles. It's a mystery because the deliverance that God has offered to his people is not what anyone would have expected. And now, though he's been planning it and hinting at it all along throughout the the pages of the Old Testament, now it's revealed. It's a mystery now revealed. The mystery is the gospel. The point is that Paul's whole ministry, by by centering it here on this content, his his whole ministry never gets beyond a central calling to explain this mystery to people. I think this implication comes out clearly in the second chapter, in verse 3. He's just stated the mystery. He's just summarized it again. And then he says in verse 3 that this mystery about Christ, well, this mystery, in, in this mystery are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The point is that there's, there's no reason to go outside of this. It's not like you start here and then you move on to try to master some other content. That this is like a foundational set of ideas that then you build on with, with other philosophies, with other, with other different pursuits or, or, or rhetoric, whatever was valued at the time. No, th- this mystery is the beginning and the end. It's a well that's deep enough that you could spend a lifetime in it and still not fully grasp its implications. So Paul isn't interested in offering people anything but the foolishness of the cross. This is a, this is a message that comes out in all of Paul's letters. 1 Corinthians 1 is one of my favorite of his apologies for this ministry style. He's not, he's, he's not trying to win converts to his beautiful language or his persuasive rhetoric. What he's trying to do is confront people with the fact that they're in danger unless they submit to God through the grace made available to them in Jesus. He confronts them with a the ministry because it's the only hope anyone, with this mystery because it's the, the only hope that anyone has. The point is it's a deep well. It's the key to understanding even the, the scriptures of the Old Testament. And there is no need to supplement it with anything else. Jesus is everything. So Paul devotes his life and calls his churches to devote their shared lives to growing in the knowledge of him and in, in his significance. Now, to bring it closer to home, what we're doing today is trying to make concrete how we are trans, transitioning or how we are transferring Paul's ministry vision into our ministry vision as a congregation. If for Paul, his ministry was never to extend beyond communication of this central content, then that has to shape everything that we do at Trinity. I suppose the place to start would be that it explains a lot of what we don't do, right? We don't have, it, you don't have to be around us very long to know that we don't have a whole lot going on. We're pretty streamlined in the programming and, and the content that we that we communicate. And some of that is about resources. You know, we're a, a new church with, without a lot of resources, so we, we have to keep to the core. But a lot of it is philosophical. We, we intentionally want to understate everything that isn't the gospel. We want everything about us to be understated except the gospel. This begins with our children's curriculum. And we, we chose this specific curriculum because it treats all the Bible as first and foremost about God, about his plan and history to work out a salvation for people through Jesus. It means that the stories as they're taught in this curriculum are not stories about how to behave better, not first and foremost some sort of Book of Virtues style or, or Aesop's Fable style. Though those, those are great stories and can be useful. We, we're after something else in the way that we train children. We, we want to teach them that all the stories of the Bible are first and foremost stories about God. And that these stories communicate not just what God is like, but what He expects 
and what He has done to save us because we have failed to deliver what He expects. That's what this curriculum is about. It's all about the gospel. The gospel gives structure to our public services, too. Hopefully it's been clear in the way that the services are structured. We intentionally build them to reflect the steps that are taken in responding to God through Jesus. Our services start with praise because of who God is. They move to confession because we recognize we don't match up to the standard God has set. We don't reflect Him in the way we were designed to. And then they respond to confession with a celebration of the fact that God has come to us in Jesus with thanksgiving for the gospel. And only then, through Jesus, move to ask God for things and to hear and respond to His word. The gospel is the reason that we are bullish on public teaching and preaching. It's a reason that ultimately we're committed to moving in our preaching only through the Bible and through as much of the Bible as possible, but always treating each individual section of the Bible as a story or a teaching that ultimately points to Jesus. We think that Jesus is the key, the thread that if you pull it through any story, ultimately it will lead to Him. So we're committed to to touching on all the different genres that are in Scripture, but always looking for that one thing, that kernel that tells us something about a God who's made a covenant with people, a covenant that has expectations, a covenant that offers grace. And what we hope, what we appeal, where we appeal to you is that you make the content of the gospel the core of your individual ministry too. Remember, this is... As a congregation, we're committed to shepherding each other, to being involved in each other's lives for a purpose, to discipling each other. And what that means is helping each other connect with the core truth of the gospel, the the mystery of God. It looks the front lines of of ministry in our church is one-on-one discipleship. It could be discipleship of a new believer. It could be through accountability partners. It can be through involvement in a small group as a leader or participating in that. It can be random conversation with a friend about whatever might be going on in life. But the point is that whatever the venue, we're calling you to be opportunists, to walk around looking for opportunities to speak gospel into, our, into each other's lives. It's, it's that simple. Think of yourself as a minister and think of the content of your ministry as the gospel. and Don't move any, don't move any further than that. That's something we get from Paul. His ministry was a gospel-centered ministry because it was centered on the content of the gospel, which is Christ, the mystery of God now revealed. This text also tells us much, though, about Paul's methods, something we also might call gospel-centered methods. His approach, the way that he carried out his ministry, was directly guided by the content he was trying to communicate. Those two things were intimately connected with each other. The way that he communicated was shaped by what he communicated. He describes his commission from God as an ambassador in verse 25, stewardship from God, a minister commissioned for one thing in particular, to make the word of God fully known. And his method for making the gospel fully known has two different facets to it that I want to tease out this morning. It begins with proclamation. But there's more to it than that. There's more than just communicating this gospel by word. It also, this passage also says a lot about the lifestyle through which Paul proclaims the gospel. And it, too, is directly shaped by the content of the gospel message. What Paul presents, the, the two facets are a proclamation 
in the context of a life of suffering. Proclamation through joyful suffering. I want to tease those two things out in each in turn. Being with proclamation, it, it makes sense that proclamation of the gospel, explaining it, telling people about it, would be the main, the main uh, action through which, or the main method through which Paul conducts his ministry. I mean, after all, the gospel is a kind of news. News has got to be announced, and it's got to be announced as clearly and concisely as possible and always appropriately given the context, always with the right set of nuance to communicate to a specific people in a specific time and place. That's, that's what he's about. Paul describes himself as a minister with a stewardship to make the word of God, the gospel, the mystery fully known. And the first description of his action is in verse 28. It builds, right, from, from Paul set aside with his stewardship to make the Word of God fully known to his description of what the Word of God is in verses 26 and 27. And then he gets to 28 and he says, this is how I do it. He says, Him we proclaim. We warn everybody. That's a certain kind of proclaiming appropriate to a context. Warning them if they've, if they've gone astray, if they're in danger of missing out on this good news. And admonishing or actually encouraging everyone to continue living out this good news, to not stray from it. Whatever the context requires, the point is he's proclaiming Jesus. That gospel ministry is irreducibly verbal ministry. Now, now here's why I'm spending so much time hammering this. It's, it may seem obvious or intuitive on the surface of it, but, but actually there are many other ways to communicate truth besides just explaining it. The arts, for instance, are a powerful way to communicate. Visual arts, for instance, visual art evokes some responses and encourages reflections in ways that other types of uh, other medium cannot do. There's something distinctive about that. Music is sort of the same way. There's something powerful in the way that a melody evokes a response and encourages reflection and, and looking into a part of you that just sometimes words won't take you to. Dialogue is another way of communicating truth that, that, that often reveals things that you couldn't reveal in other, in other ways. Talking things out, not making statements, but, but asking questions and teasing out possible answers and batting them around each other. Those, those, are, those are ways to evoke truth. But one of the reasons we celebrate those ways is their subjectivity. There's something about them that's necessarily subjective, and that's a value. They, they cause you to think more about yourself and cause you to be reflective, but, but they aren't necessarily geared towards communicating anything very clearly, very concisely. A lot of times the, the point is the impression that they make on you, not, not anything in the thing itself, not any kind of content that's fixed. It's necessarily subjective. The gospel is a kind of news that that doesn't lend itself to that kind of subjective communication. It's irreducibly verbal because it is a clear message that's true in the same way for everybody at all times. Those kind of venues, things like, like visual arts and, and even music, can help us understand some of the periphery of the gospel. They can help us enhance the words in themselves. They can give flesh almost to the words that we speak about the gospel. But they can't replace the centrality of preaching of teaching and proclaiming God's word. The church from the beginning until now has put that kind of proclamation at the center of its ministry. And there, even in a visual age like ours, where we're wired up to see things, whether it's our phone or our 
our computers or our own television. We're wired up that way. Even in the middle of this age, there's something about proclaiming God's word and hearing it that is, that is unavoidably necessary because of the nature of this news, because of the nature of it. The content shapes the method. That's proclamation. There's another piece, though, to Paul's method for communicating this gospel that is actually even more difficult, it seems like, to get a handle on. It's what I'm calling joyful suffering as the, almost the, the means or the environment, or the context in which he proclaims the word about the gospel. Verse 24 is where this gets introduced. He says, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now that, that's a strange concept to say the least. Lots of questions. How in the world could Paul's suffering add something to Jesus' suffering? It seems like on the surface he's saying there's something that's missing in what Jesus offers. There's some lack there that now has to be filled up through what Paul does. Even in the context of this letter, though, it seems like Paul can't mean that. He can't mean that his work on the cross wasn't enough to accomplish redemption. I mean, that's one of the main things that's driven his letter from the beginning, was trying to convince people not to supplement Jesus with other things that they can put their hope in, but to to be content to rest only on him. That's what that whole hymn was about that we looked at last week, celebrating all the amazing things that are true of Jesus that make him uniquely able to offer redemption to us. So it it would seem impossible then for Paul to, just after that, say something that would indicate Jesus' death wasn't enough. To make us right with God. That can't be it. So what does it mean? Well, biblical experts, New Testament scholars, commentators have many different takes on the question. And I think for our purposes, we can break down the question of what this means into two questions. We have to understand what is it that's lacking in Christ's afflictions... And we have to understand how it's possible that Paul's suffering, Paul's afflictions, could fill up what's lacking on behalf of the Colossians. Two questions here we've got to answer. What is it that's lacking in what Jesus has done? And how is it that anything Paul could suffer would add to it, fill up that lack on behalf of the Colossians? Those are the questions. I think the most helpful thing I've read on this this, uh, passage is a section in Desiring God by John Piper, who's a New Testament scholar and a pastor in, in Minneapolis, wrote this book. It's become something of a classic in the last 20, 25 years. In the final chapter of the book, he, he takes up this question directly, this passage, and, and tries to work with it. On the first question, what it is that's lacking in Christ's afflictions, of course, as I've already said, it can't be anything related to the sufficiency of his death to redeem sinners. What's lacking, according to Piper, is the perception or the sight of those afflictions. What's lacking is that peoples of the world, those like the Colossians who didn't see Jesus die with their own eyes, or who haven't heard what his death was about, those, those people have not yet seen 
Christ's afflictions. That's what's lacking in them. Direct encounter with them. A key analogy that he uses is the same usage of this same phrase, the, uh, the phrase filling up what is lacking. Paul uses that in another place. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 30, he's writing to the Philippians, basically thanking them for a gift that they had made. They had, they, they'd sent around for some sort of collection, we're not told what, to give to Paul. And they had sent it by one of Paul's buddies, a guy named Epaphroditus. And he says... He refers to Epaphroditus risking his life to get this to Paul. And what he describes it as is is Epaphroditus filling up what is lacking in your service to me. Talking to the Philippians. Epaphroditus filled up what was lacking in the Philippians' service to Paul. Now, there wasn't anything lacking in the gift itself. It's not like he was slapping them on the wrist for not giving him enough. The the gift was, was fixed. It was already completed. It was fulfilled. But he didn't have it yet. It wasn't placed into his hands. He couldn't see it and benefit from it directly. So the way that Epaphroditus filled up what was lacking was by taking it to Paul and putting it into his hands. Similarly, same phrase. He says, I am now filling up what is lacking in Jesus' afflictions for you. And the way that I do that is by living out those afflictions in front of you. I make them visible to you through my own afflictions. I represent them to you in a way that makes them tangible, touchable even, seeable. That's what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. The next question is a crucial one, though. How could Paul's sufferings be for the Colossians and to complete what was lacking in Christ's afflictions, to complete what was necessary to make these afflictions known to them? What was lacking in the afflictions is that they weren't known. They weren't seen or touched. Paul is filling that lack. How are his sufferings doing that? Here's Piper's answer. He writes, God intends for the afflictions of Christ to be presented to the world through the afflictions of his people. God really means for the body of Christ, the church, to experience some of the suffering he experienced. So that when we proclaim the cross as the way to life, people will see the marks of the cross in us and feel the love of the cross from us. Our calling is to make the afflictions of Christ real for people by the afflictions we experience in bringing them the message of salvation. Do you get that? Suffering is a piece to Paul's method for communicating the gospel. And it's a piece of his method that comes directly from the content of the gospel itself. The content of the gospel is suffering by one person on behalf of others, setting aside his own interest to accomplish their redemption. That content sets the manner in which Paul proclaims the content. He does it through similarly setting aside his interests for the interests of those to whom he brings the gospel. He proclaims the gospel through a life of suffering modeled on Christ's own suffering. It provides, in other words, his, his suffering provides a context in which Jesus' words, words about Jesus even, are, are more compelling. You might, call it, you might call his philosophy an incarnational ministry where he's putting flesh onto his word about Jesus by showing in his own life what the word teaches. So what might it look like? How would we do this? How would we proclaim the word itself through the suffering that we experience? I think the most obvious example is actual persecution that's brought on by preaching the gospel. It's certainly been true in every phase of the church's history, that the, the classic quote is that the blood of martyrs has been the seed. 
that by people giving their lives for the gospel, it has inspired others to convert to Christianity because when they see someone willing to give their life for it, they see that it must itself be worth dying for. It testifies to the preciousness of the thing proclaimed when someone is willing to to give their life for it. And when we're willing to suffer for the chance to proclaim Jesus, it helps to communicate the quality of what we're proclaiming. And you know what? That might be called for from some of you. It might be called for from some of you. One of our prayers for our congregation is that God would raise up missionaries, people who are willing to leave everything that's comfortable to them behind, to go to places that they've never even been before, particularly to places that have never heard Jesus' name, and to be willing, if necessary, to give their lives in order to communicate about him. That's what we're praying for. I guess you could say... On one level, we're praying for martyrs, maybe even from among us, as hard as that is to imagine. Fulfilling Paul's ministry philosophy requires that we be willing to do that. But we tend to put martyrs on a pedestal, and and kind of inevitably, and rightly so. They're giving up everything. But there's lots more ways than death in a foreign land to be persecuted, to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And... I think for all of us, we are going to face, we should face, times where, where it costs us to identify with Christ and to communicate him to other people. I know for a fact that for some of you, it's costing you where you work, where, where it could cost you friends or respect because of the things that you believe and because of your willingness to talk about Jesus. Those of you associated with the university, uh, I know from experience how painful that can be, how foolish you can seem in being willing to proclaim Christ as the only hope to salvation in a context of, of radical diversity and, uh, on so many different levels. But all of you at some level are interacting with people who don't know Jesus. And when you proclaim him, when you identify with him, it could cost you, if not physically, then in terms of your reputation. But I don't think we should even limit ourselves to seeing this kind of philosophy this ministry philosophy of proclaiming the word through suffering as a way of pointing to the, the, the sufficiency of Jesus' death, I don't think we should limit that only to persecution that we experience when we communicate Christ because we're communicating Christ. Persecution defined as some sort of suffering that we have to go through because we're willing to talk about Jesus. I don't think we should limit a, a application of what Paul is talking about here to those situations. I think it's broader than that. I think we should also see it because we should see suffering as a calling as we do ministry in each other's lives because ultimately it's just not convenient to us to involve ourselves meaningfully with other people. When you get involved in someone else's life with a purpose, with the gospel as your focus, it's going to mean taking on their burdens. It's going to, be know, it's going to mean knowing their junk and, and carrying that around with you. It's going to mean them knowing what you have going on and, and, and a vulnerability that, is, that can be very painful. It's going, to mean, it's going to mean that you oftentimes use your time or your money in ways that you wouldn't if you weren't called to communicate the gospel to people. It's going to mean taking on the affliction, maybe in a much more mild sense, but in a real sense, of reorganizing your priorities around proclaiming this gospel. And when someone sees you do that, you're testifying to them of the worthiness of what it is that you're preaching. It's worth organizing your whole life around. It's worth inconveniencing yourself. And finally, 
I think another part to this incarnational ministry is just living through suffering that comes from seemingly natural causes, but doing it in a way that is joyful. Because when you testify of what Jesus is in the gospel, and then you suffer the loss of physical health, the loss of loved ones, the loss of jobs, when you, when you, when you suffer things that just seem to happen in the normal course of life, but rejoice even in those sufferings because you're holding on to this gospel that makes them trivial in comparison to what has been provided to you through Jesus. What you're doing through that suffering and through doing it joyfully is pointing to the worthiness of the thing that you're centering your life on. That there's nothing that could be stripped away from you that could take away from the fundamental grounding you have in Jesus. That's a kind of incarnational ministry. It takes what you're preaching and lives it out in the context of some sort of lack or deprivation and still proclaims it to be glorious, worthy of even joy, taking joy in the suffering itself. That's a radical statement about the, the, the ministry or, the, or about the gospel, the mystery that you're proclaiming. The point is that the Christian life is summarized as a life of cross-taking. It's always nothing more than a call to follow Jesus by sharing his sufferings. And that's even more true to the extent that we get involved in ministry among each other. A life that's dedicated to proclaiming the gospel as something that should be prized, as something that's beautiful and true and life-giving, it's opposed by evil and it can lead to persecution, but it also stands opposed to the competing values of the world. It means that it's a call for self-denial over the indulgence of a desire that comes natural for money or for sex or for opportunities to enhance your reputation. And it casts a light on things that happen to us because even sorrow or pain or loss, when we keep faith in the context of, of some sort of sorrow or pain or loss, we testify to the power of the gospel that we preach. Paul's calling for a lifestyle of suffering as a method for proclaiming the mystery of Christ and his afflictions. Because when we consider all things as loss for Jesus' sake, when we're willing to consider death as gain, when we've learned to be content in all circumstances and even to rejoice in affliction, we testify that in Christ are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and he's enough. He's enough. That's Paul's method. Finally, gospel-centered goals. This is a point that we're going to develop from here on out in the letter. Because his goal is very simple. It's maturity in Christ. He builds to that in the middle of the first paragraph. He, he says, we proclaim Christ, we warn everyone, we teach everyone with all wisdom that, here's our purpose, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Early in chapter 2, he sort of fleshes that out a little bit, what that might look like, some examples. He struggles for those who are at Colossae and Laodicea that their hearts may be encouraged, that they might be knit together as a community in love, that they might reach the fullness of understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery. These are the things that he's after. And the rest of the letter is his explanation of what it looks like to be mature in Christ. It is his testimony of what threatens gospel maturity. And it's his explanation of what enhances it. I guess you could say the question he's answering is, how do you define success in ministry? And if your definition is gospel-centered, it won't be defined by any set number of people. That belongs to God only. It won't be defined by the scale 
of content that someone's mastered by reaching some sort of new level or new height of knowledge. It won't be defined by that. Here he's focused on knowing the gospel and the gospel alone. Instead, the way that Paul measures success is in the development of a kind of person, not a number of people, but a kind of person, a life that's shaped by the gospel, someone who's mature in him. Maturity is something, it's, it's a slippery word. It's hard to define exactly, but we, we think of a mature person as someone who's well-grounded, who, who understands through experience what the world is like and responds appropriately in different situations. They have a foundation for interacting with the world that's solid, that's well-founded. Paul wants those who are mature, who are well-founded in Christ, in the gospel. He's fought so hard, so far, even in chapter 1, against moving on, moving past the gospel message, supplementing it or replacing it with something else, because he believes that the gospel itself is the engine that grows us as Christians. It's the means to Christian maturity. So a gospel-centered goal is that the gospel shapes life. Now, this, like I've said, this last point is not one we'll develop here because we're going to spend the rest of the letter developing it, what it looks like. But for now, let me just say that this defines our goals for us as a congregation. Some of the literature we've looked at, you know, there's, there's tons of literature out there now on church planting and church growth. Some of the literature we looked at encouraged, that when you, encouraged us when you prepare to launch a congregation, you should set yourself some milestones, that help keep things fresh, help keep you pushing onward and moving ahead. Typically, they had to do with some sort of numerical or programmatic milestone, some sort of number. By this date, we'll have so many. By the next date, we'll have this many. Or we'll have th- these programs in place by X date. And, and I understand those things. I, I don't mean to run down those motives uh, behind those suggestions. I merely mean to suggest we're not measuring success that way. We're working and praying for people that are mature in Christ. That's what we're after. That's measured by whether someone could suffer failure or disappointment in their career and say, you know, because Jesus has won for me, I can lose, and it doesn't affect who I really am. We're looking for people who could lose loved ones and say that his name is still blessed because if I know, if I know that God wouldn't even spare his own son that he would stop at nothing to express his love to me, then I can know that his wisdom is at work here too. We're looking for people who can run into conflict in their marriages or in their workplaces or even in our church and not look only at the faults of the other person trying to justify themselves, but to lead out in reconciliation from a place of repentance, knowing that there is sin to go around, to, to lead out in reconciliation by knowing that I'm never fully innocent, and my opponent, no matter how guilty, could never be as guilty as I am before God, and I'm forgiven by God, so I am to forgive this person. We're looking for people who can lose everything that's dear to them, and still, at the end of it all, having everything stripped away, be able to say that Jesus is enough. That's maturity in Christ. That's the goal for everything that we do. Would you pray with me now? Lord, this is a goal that's way too big for us. We know that from experience. We feel a sense of helplessness to accomplish what we so badly want to see. We thank you that there's encouragement to be had in the fact that the gospel is all of your grace. 
that its work and its ongoing work in our lives is also all of your grace. What we ask for then is just faithfulness. We ask for protection from other things that promise success that might allure us away from faithfulness to this simple gospel message. We ask for hearts, all of us, for hearts that are so moved by the beauty of this message that we don't want anything else. We ask for ministries, each of us, among each other and outside in the world. We ask for ministries that are, that are motivated by a personal love and passion for the mystery that's now revealed in Jesus so that it flows out of us, that it won't be contained by us, that it produces a joy that isn't rooted in any circumstances, but that's rooted in the security that we stand before you through Jesus as those who are made right those who are holy, those who are healed and whole through him. Would you accomplish this, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.